Thanks for taking the time to listen to our latest content here on the Blood Red channel. Guy here with just a quick message. Do you want the very latest Liverpool FC news directly into your inbox? Well then sign up to our daily LFC newsletter, which will bring you the breaking news and big events from around Anfield. To subscribe, just go to bit.ly forward slash LFC newsletter. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash LFC newsletter. Or click the link in the description of this podcast and pop in your email address. It really is that simple. That link once more bit.ly forward slash LFC newsletter. Well, thanks for your time and on with the podcast. This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to the latest podcast on the Blood Red channel. The Premier League confirmed on Monday that clubs were free to return to training from today, Tuesday, May the 19th, as Project Restart took another step towards completion. So what does that mean for Liverpool? Well, for a start, they will return to training, we believe, on Wednesday. And while it might not be completely normal, with social distancing still in place for the players, it is positive news, at least. Off the field, too, it's going to have several implications, notably financially, which so often with football, even if we don't like to admit it, is the bottom line. So to discuss everything football finance and the impact that the latest Premier League meeting will have on Liverpool FC, I'm delighted to have alongside me Kieran Maguire from the University of Liverpool and Price of Football podcast. Kieran, how are you getting on? I'm, uh, I'm surviving not too badly. I've got a talk that gives me an excuse to get out of the house every day with Without without the neighbours phoning the police, so uh, he, he's uh, he's he's very useful to me at present. But uh, at the university, we've gone online. Uh, we're doing the exams online, doing our teaching online. The students have bought into it, uh, and and it's just a case of keeping in touch with them and trying to keep their spirits up as much as anything else. Yeah, it must be must be really difficult. I mean, I myself graduated from the University of Liverpool last summer. And it would have been a very different experience, I'm sure, if I'd have been there at the moment. But uh, yeah, hopefully we can get back to some sort of normality in in the near future, if not uh, in the in the present. But uh, yeah, there's a, a few reasons that we've got you on. Obviously, I mentioned the Premier League meeting, and I think that's the sort of topic that we will start with. It seems like clubs are getting back into training. We're around six weeks behind the Bundesliga and German football. I think it's it's fair to say, but. Uh, the Premier League is going to come back here, and financially, I suppose, there, there wasn't really any other option. There was huge pressure financially. Um, we're three quarters of the way through the season. So if you think that the TV deal is worth around about £3 billion a season, there there was potentially a £750 million refund due to the, to the broadcasters. Um, and... Even though Premier League goes of, of deep pockets and many of them wealthy on an individual basis, that would have been uh, an awful lot of money to find for a short term. And uh, I, I don't think they wanted that. Um, so money money drives all the decisions. If you go through all the divisions in English football at present, every decision ultimately has been determined by the cost of coming back compared to the, the savings from, from continuing. And that's what formed the basis. Uh, clearly, there's going to be no match day income at Anfield, at, uh, at Goodison, at Old Trafford, and so on. But we'll have further further implications because I think clubs now will be looking at giving refunds to them. Uh, yeah, that's money going out, and they've got no money coming in. 
Yeah, it's uh, certainly strange times. And that sort of phrase, the new normal, gets thrown around a lot these days. I think that's something we're going to have to get used to, the, the latest sort of projection that social distancing will be in place for the six to 12 months, so certainly no time soon. But uh, just in terms of sort of the Champions League places and, and that sort of thing, that's sort of certainly for, for Liverpool and, and the top end of the Premier League, something important going into next season. I mean, that was going to be pretty difficult to decide anyway, or certainly more complicated than normal, given that Manchester City potentially have their European football ban coming into place from Dima onward. I mean, are we any closer to, to doing what might happen with that and, and sort of the financial implications that that might have on them? Because when you combine that with coronavirus, that's a pretty complex situation, isn't it? Uh, very much so. Um, yeah, speak, speaking to, to two people and sort of you know, listening to uh, other, other people's viewpoints, my understanding is that Manchester City wanted a swift resolution to this via the cats because that had huge implications for them in terms of a recruitment this summer, uh, but also retention. Uh, you've got players like Kevin De Bruyne, who are he's 29, almost 29. If he has to face two years without Champions League football, um, you know, foot, footballers are wealthy. But I think the, the elite players, it's, it's as much, if not more, to do with their conscious that they're on a limited time frame, playing-wise, and they want to look at back at their achievements in terms of medals and trophies. I don't think De Bruyne would be uh, delighted if he had to wait until 31 um, before he resumes his, his uh, opportunities to win a Champions League medal. So that, that plays a lot in, in, in City's planning, and, and that's why they are very keen. City are very confident that they will uh, defend the charges. UEFA are equally confident that they have a watertight case. So it will come down ultimately as to who has got the best lawyers, who's got the most persuasive lawyers when it comes to the tribunal, which takes place in Switzerland at some point in time. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a difficult one as well, isn't it? Because obviously Liverpool, as title rivals, they will sort of be able to, to capitalise almost on, on Manchester's misfortune in, in that regard. But, I mean, just to speak about this year's Champions League for a second, I mean, is it possible that Liverpool could almost be champions of Europe for an extra season, even though they've gone out of this season's competition because the rest of the season could be scrapped? Or are we in a, a situation similar to the Premier League whereby there's simply too much money involved for, for that to be the case? Um, I, I think UEFA are desperate for some resolution to this season. I think it's very noticeable that they are very quiet with uh, any projections. A lot, a lot of that is uh, waiting upon their deadline, which they've set to individual member associations. So I think that's May the 20th. And then UEFA will try to work out how or if it is feasible to complete uh, the, the, uh, the, the, both the Champions League and the Europa League. Uh, the challenges are significant. It could mean we, we go to one-legged ties. It could be that we go to ties at neutral venues behind closed doors just as a means of having some form of closure because, uh, first of all, the the degree to which you progress through the tournament does have financial implications in terms of the way that the prize money is allocated. There's also some of the, the crazy UEFA 10-year coefficients which have to be calculated and of course, the, the, the team that wins the Champions League 
automatically qualifies for next year's tournament as well, as does the team that wins the Europa League. So we, UEFA will be very reluctant to effectively call the whole thing off this season. Um, and that there are going to be problems because, of course, we've seen the French League domestically be called off. So where does this league leave some of the, the clubs who are uh, potentially going to be playing in Europe if their domestic league is closed? You know, every you think you've got an answer, up pops another question. Um, and you know, the people at UEFA are, are you know, having massive WhatsApp meetings and Zoom meetings, as we all are these days, just to work some form. Of, of solution to this, but it, it's a bit like whack-a-mole. Um, every time you think you've come up with an answer, somebody points out that's actually created a new problem. Yeah, certainly it's, it's going to be interesting, obviously. The Premier League will be doing what League One in France has done and, and completely voiding the season from, from this point onwards, but uh, the Championship is an interesting sort of proposition as well, and it's not strictly Liverpool-related, but you know the Championship, One, League Two... The implications there, are they perhaps linked to what the Premier League does? Do you think they're maybe waiting to see what happens in the top flight before they then make their decision too? I, I, I don't think so. Um, in, in terms of the EFL, uh, clubs are driven by money-related decisions. So uh, they, they made, the, made the call last Friday for uh, League 2 to be finished, although that's not been ratified yet. It's got to be ratified by both the, the EFL as a whole and uh, the, the FA. Um, and, and my understanding is that the FA are very unhappy with the decision to have no relegation. Um, and I think the clubs in the championship are equally uncomfortable about that because one of the suggestions which has been put forward by the Premier League or by some clubs in the Premier League, should I say, is that there will be a relegation this season. Uh, and, um, the EFL have said, well, that's not acceptable to them. They've got a, a they've got a, a signed agreement with the Premier League, which involves promotion and relegation on an annual basis. So if the EFL doesn't allow relegation to the National League, could the Premier League say, well, you've actually set a precedent and therefore we're going to do similar. And you can imagine the, the legal consequences to that. Because Leeds and West Ham, who have done very well this season at the top of the championship, they are desperate to be promoted, of course, and, and equally you've got clubs such as Norwich, Bournemouth and Villa who will be, you know, they'd be pretty happy if, if uh, it ends up that there's a relegation. The broadcasters would also be very unhappy should there be no relegation from the Premier League this season because we, we've got to be honest, Liverpool have won the Premier League in all the game. It's simply a case of just, you know, you know dotting the I's and crossing the T's with that. So, what have Sky and BT got to broadcast? They've got 47 matches, um, which they've signed up for, though I expect they'll be offered more by the Premier League. Um, and there's got to be something riding on those matches. If Liverpool have won the, uh, won the division, that means that the, the, the title chase is effectively over. Um, therefore, the attention normally tends to uh, switch to relegation. If there's no relegation, uh, if I was Sky or BT, I'd be very unhappy because you're effectively looking at glorified friendlies in an empty stadium. That's not good for your viewing figures. No, certainly not. It's uh, not an ideal scenario, but hopefully something can be figured out because, you know, as we're going to touch on later, I mean, if there are no fans in stadiums, it's, it's going to be very difficult for 
I mean, even the bottom end of the Premier League to survive. But uh, we'll we'll turn our attention now towards the the transfer market, and obviously we don't know exactly when. Or, or how that is going to take place this summer. We assume that there is going to be a window for, for clubs to buy players. But, I mean, we've heard it so many times, but big money and, and big fees are highly likely to be spent, aren't they? Um, I, I think certainly medium-sized fees are likely to collapse. Um, if, if we are dealing with a scenario whereby you've got two of the elite clubs in Europe and they both have strong balance sheets then the selling club's in a position to resist initial offers and the buying club has the resources to make a good offer. So we could see one or two surprises, but I think certainly for the the non-big six clubs in the Premier League um, and so on, uh, clubs at that level will be looking to either loan the loan market, um, to picking up bargains from the rest of Europe um, or the championship. So at those clubs whose business model is based upon selling players um, in order to make ends meet, in order to progress as a club, and I think we're looking at here at sort of clubs such as Brentford, have a, have a very good uh, development model. Uh, I think they are going to be the biggest losers, as are perhaps the likes of Southampton, who traditionally have a good academy, brought, brought players, players formerly deliverable, of course, um, and they they will be struggling to get the same types of fees as they have historically been able to generate. So certainly prices will be down. I think the number of transactions will be down as well, because there will be so many of the UEFA membership who don't know whether they're starting football in August or not, under what circumstances they'll be starting football, and whether or not they can afford to pay players. You put all of that into the mix, and the the prospect of going out and spending big fees becomes a, a non-starter. It, it might also be a huge own goal uh, socially um, if football clubs are seen to be on the one hand, um, you know, some have furloughed staff in the Premier League, you know, Norwich have, for example. If they are then seen to be going out and spending large sums, I think the, the, the public reaction would be very negative. You've seen what's happened at Anfield with that regard already. Um, but also, I think on, a, on an individual level, um, do you want to be seen to be spending 60 or 70 pounds on, on a brand new uh, version of this kit? Uh, when your mates are being furloughed, they can't afford to go to the pub, even if we have some form of uh, social gatherings allowed. Um, it, it could be that conspicuous consumption in any form, either on a club level or an individual level in respect of football, actually becomes socially unacceptable. So do you think then maybe in the transfer market there's almost like a, a moral question that the clubs will have to ask themselves? It's a case of do we do what maybe looks to be the right thing or do we just take the criticism and, and spend on that new striker because ultimately the fans will go, oh, well, it's all right because we've got a new number nine. Well, um, I, I suspect to a certain extent if that man scores six goals in his first four games, everything's forgotten. You know, football fans are that way. If if it turns out to be like Wesley at Villa or Joe Linton at Newcastle, where they've spent a lot of money and he turns to be a dud, uh, I think the voices will be even louder than they would have been under normal circumstances. Uh, a, a lot of people are suffering in the UK at present. Yeah, they're being cooped up. They've, they've lost their income streams. They're not necessarily capable of being furloughed because of the nature of the work that they've done and so on. 
Um, I, I think football's got to tread very delicately. We do expect um, perhaps a higher degree of moral and ethical code football clubs than we do from perhaps any other line of business that we come into contact with. You know, if I'm dealing with my bank, I, I, I'm fairly cynical. If I'm dealing with a with a big grocery store, the, the attitude's the same. I, I like to look up to my football clubs, hoping they have a set of values that I want to be associated with and spending money as if it's going not go, going out of fashion uh, and being in complete disregard as to what the biggest global crisis, it's, yeah, this is not being melodramatic, since the end of the World War II, um, I, I think would be very insensitive of clubs. Certainly, yeah. I mean, Liverpool are, are probably one of those in the most strongest position to go out and spend. I mean, how likely is it that someone like Timo Werner could potentially come in at Liverpool for you know, that £52 million fee that's mooted? I mean, are Liverpool financially in a position, do you think, to be able to do that? Whether there's a more question is, is another sort of question in, in itself, of course, but are they in a, a position economically to be able to do it? Very much so. Uh, Liverpool's business model is an intriguing one in that historically, when they've generated extra income, that's flowed through straight into Jurgen Klopp's budget over the course of the past few years, and that money has been well spent. Um, as far as the cost of uh, signing someone such as that, most deals these days are spread over uh, a series of years. So although it's a £52 million potential cost, if that was split into four annual instalments, then, then Liverpool will be able to absorb that with relative ease. Um, so I, I don't see a, a problem in terms of the financing uh, in terms of recruitment. And of course, you know, it could be that they might try to do a swap deal. And I do expect either loans connected with deals or swap deals arising uh, simply because clubs move, move moving more towards the, uh, the, the moral and ethical issues. They want to be seriously spending such big sums of money. So this is a way of dealing with issues of that nature. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you mentioned that we're more likely to see maybe swap deals or sort of creative transfer market solution. But I mean, it's probably a good idea for a lot of clubs to try and be a little bit more smart in the transfer market anyway, regardless of what's going on, given some of the sums that gets thrown around. But I mean, apart from maybe swap deals, are there any other ways that clubs would be creative in summer? Maybe, as you say, spreading out the cost. Do you think clubs will be more receptive to, to maybe accepting lower prices for players or what what do you think the, the land the, the sort of way that the land will be in terms of market do you think you know we'll see less deals take place or will they just take place in a different way um i, I think there will be fewer deals because some some of the uh, some of the leagues in europe don't know whether they're going to be starting next season or not so clearly they won't be the buying vision and it is therefore going to force them into sales um, I, I did see um, some information, some data coming out of Portugal. Portugal is a really intriguing country because um, the clubs there, they, they have the greatest proportion of their total income that comes into the clubs comes from player sales. Now, with, with Portugal, with these football not taking this, um, people are actually more desperate to sell players, which means if you're desperate to sell, you have to accept lower prices. If we take a look at uh, Fernandez at Manchester United, he went for you know, a roundabout with about 67 million euros. Um, if, if he was being sold this summer, um, his, his, his club would have got half of that if they were lucky. 
So certainly prices will come down. This does mean that clubs that have been run well financially, and I, I include Liverpool in that, will be in a position to, um, I, I don't like to use the phrase exploit the market because uh, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer said that a few weeks ago and he was castigated. Um, they, they are simply taking advantage of the market where perhaps historically prices have been too high and, and we're going to have a new normal in the sense of what a football player is worth. If you take a look at the players who have gone for figures of either close to or more than £100 million, pounds, um, you've got Mbappe is a success at PSG. Neymar, he's, he's done domestically, but it, you know, it's the equivalent. If you take a look at the French League, um, you know, it, it's the equivalent of uh, a, a marathon gold medal runner in the in the Olympics. It's the equivalent of you know, Mo Farah winning his local park run. You know, he's not going to get overexcited by that um, under those circumstances. If you look at the likes of Dembele at uh, Barcelona, Coutinho at Barcelona, Griezmann at Barcelona, they've all been pops. They're £100 million transfers. So before this summer, I think that there was perhaps a degree of realism between in, in respect of buying clubs. But even if you are sp spending these eye-watering sums, um, there's no guarantee that you're going to get a return on that investment. And that was actually probably driving players' prices down a little bit lower into this sort of this mid-tier for the elite clubs of perhaps the, the 50 to 60 pound bracket. Um, and then we take into account coronavirus and you can certainly knock you know, a half to a third off that. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. One of the, the other sort of transfer-related topics that has come up over the last few weeks is the idea that players like Adam Lunner, for instance, who are sort of coming towards the end of their deals this summer, they could be forced to sign a short-term extension to make sure that they can play for the rest of this season. Now, that seems, the face of it, quite a simple thing to agree. But, I mean, if you're a player who's coming towards the end of their contract... You might have your eye on your next move. and Do you think there's a, a possibility, perhaps, that some of these players might not be so reticent to, to signing an extension because they might think, well, what if I pick up an injury or, or what if I contract coronavirus in that period? That could cost them the next move, couldn't it? But very much so. And, and, and under the, the Bosman ruling, to players who are in the final six months of a contract are effectively allowed to sign a pre-contract deal with another club. Um, there is no way that a club can force a player to sign a short-term deal. It be that will be recommended, it will be seen to be the appropriate thing to do. But if you are a young man in you know his, his mid to late twenties, um, your, your focus is, is providing for your family. Uh, if you if you imagine if you, you did that and you your cruciate went. There's no obligation for the club that has just extended your contract for a month to pay you for the next seven or eight months until until you're fully fit. Um, speaking to sports lawyers, they feel that uh, clubs are on very, very thin ice when it comes to the issue of contract extensions if the players have decided that they want to move on. It could be that another club comes in for Lallana and offers him significantly more money than his present deal at Liverpool. So, so why should he give up um, additional money for a club which ultimately has said, well, we don't think you're good enough for us. We don't want to extend your contract. 
uh, loyalty works more than one way within football. Um, and, you know, I'd imagine that Adam Alana was feeling, well, he's disappointed that he's not been offered a longer extension or, or an improved contract or things of nature from up. So under those circumstances, he cannot be forced to sign a contract extension. Um, and, and I think clubs have to do, deal with this very delicately. If they try to force things through, um, expect some form of legal action to be taken by uh, the players' representatives. Yeah, it's uh, certainly one of those many obstacles that will have to be overcome between now and that sort of period at the end of July when those deals expire. But, uh, perhaps probably some better timing was, was Liverpool's Nike kit deal that came into effect or, or will come into effect this summer. They've agreed with New Balance that you know the, the dates can be altered and, and they've sort of agreed that, you know this Premier League title win will still take place in the New Balance uh, kit, which is, I think, probably the morally right thing to do. Um, but just in terms of the timing of that, do you think Liverpool will be in any relieved that this Nike kit deal got done when it did? Because would this situation with the coronavirus now potentially have, have put that in danger? Um, certainly, because the, the way that the deal has been structured, and nobody's seen the small print, it appears to be that uh, Nike are offering a lower guaranteed fee, but a much higher commission on every shirt sold. So I think perhaps Liverpool might be a little bit twitchy now because, you know, with the potential, and I'm not trying to be scaremongering it, for the potential for, say, 4 million people to be unemployed in the UK by the end of this calendar year, um, there'll be other people who, who can't afford to buy new kits. So Liverpool are now going to be getting from some people 20% of nothing. They were, it looked like their, their commission was going to go up from 7% to 20 um, If you've got a lot of people who, for whatever reason, uh, it could be due to personal circumstances, due to a loss of employment. Uh, it could be fit that they feel that they only want to wear the kit when they're at Anfield or when they're out physically supporting football. So therefore, why buy the kit under those circumstances? Um, I think the volume of kit sales is likely to fall until we have some form of greater social interaction. Because otherwise, what's the point of spending 60 or 70 quid on a full shirt when the only person that can see you is your friends, perhaps on Zoom, or your wife or partner, whoever it's going to be in the back garden. Yeah, certainly interesting times. I mean, just looking ahead now to the 2020-21 the season, we don't know, of course, when that is going to take place. But there is a, a strong possibility that, as you say, there'll be no fans in stadiums when that does happen. Certainly for, for 6 to 12 months is, is sort of the latest guidance on that. I mean... Clubs are at the lower end of the Premier League and, and certainly lower down the pyramid. That's a huge problem for them, isn't it? Is this potentially the, the end of football as we know it? Um, I, think, I think the clubs in the prem, at the bottom end of the Premier League actually will be OK. What, what's most important to them is uh, the broadcasting deal. So if we take a club such as Bournemouth, Bournemouth get £3.80 out of every £100 that they, they generate through the turnstiles. So they can actually probably cope without um, match day income for some time. But I agree with you entirely in relation to club in the EFL. The further you drop down through the football pyramid, the less significant broadcasting money becomes and the more important that match day income becomes. 
So even if we have some form of resolution, clearly we've, we've sort of solved League Two this season. League One is uh, presently at civil war uh, between those clubs that want to continue and those clubs that want to give up. And even as far as up as the championship, um, there is little to be gained from those matches taking place next season because the costs of pay, playing payer wages plus the costs of ongoing testing. You know, it, it was estimated that it would have costed, if the total cost for the EFL would be close to £12 million pounds to, to fully fund Leagues 1, 2 and the Championship um, this season. And, and individual club owners say they can't afford that. Um, they might take the view is that we will try to finish off this season as best we can and then put the EFL clubs into some form of deep freeze until we can resume because there are clubs clearly in the, in the championship uh, to a lesser extent in Leagues 1 and 2 who are quite capable of getting crowds of you know, 25, 30,000 on a weekend, weekend, week out basis. And that money is essential for those clubs' financial well-being. Yeah, certainly it's a, a bigger concern the lower down you get, as you say. But I mean, for Liverpool, I, I think I'm right in saying their sort of match day income per fan is greater than ever Premier League club because of you know the, the tickets, the, the sort of merchandise that they sell surrounding that as well. So, I mean, it's still going to be a concern for Liverpool as well, isn't it? Even though maybe broadcasting is, is bigger for them, it's still going to be an issue. Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, Liverpool make around about £3 million, perhaps a little bit more, um, from each match which takes place at Anfield. So, you know, and business, which, which is going to you know, have to, have to turn, turn that money away on a regular basis, is, is going to be suffering. Um, that there will be some cost savings that can be made at the club, and I'm sure that those will be taken in due course. Um, but it's not just... Liverpool Football Club that's going to be suffering from the matches which are not taking place at home. You and I both know every weekend when there's a match taking place at Anfield, you can't get a hotel booking in the, in the whole of the city because Liverpool are a very attractive pro proposition. They've got fans coming from other parts of the country. They've got fans coming from Ireland. They've got fans coming from Scandinavia and, and so on. Um, and, and actually... Liverpool FC and Everton FC um, are big tourist attractions which help support the hospitality industry, which will be taking a hammering as well. So, you know, those guys who are running scarves outside town, you know, the pie sellers, you know, the, 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 the shops which are close to Anfield, they will be suffering because their 25 to 30 biggest days uh, in terms of generating income is when there's a taking at home. So, yeah, absolutely, the club's going to be hit by, by you know, the loss of this £3 million or so per home match. But the, the ancillary services, you know, the, the supply chain, the, the, the ripple impact of, of Liverpool and Everton not playing matches at home, uh, potentially for the whole of next season in front of a paying crowd, are going to be huge. Yeah, it's uh, easy to forget, isn't it? All the, the other businesses that are interlinked with Liverpool Football Club and you only have to go down on a non-match day and, and compare it to a match day to see how much of an impact those 60,000 or so people uh, going to Anfield every couple of weeks for home games make. Um, but if we uh, we sort of put that into the context now of the Anfield Road extension as well, that's officially put back by 12 months now. It's obviously a setback for supporters who are 
looking to try and get hold of tickets because it'll be 7,000 less tickets for, for an additional 12 months. But most of them are general admission tickets. So will this make a huge difference financially for, for Liverpool? Obviously, the reason they're doing it is not just to get more people in the stadium, but the money that that brings in too. Yeah, I, mean, I think the Liverpool business model in terms of selling tickets is, is intriguing. Um, I think they've possibly got the lowest proportion of season ticket holders in the whole of the Premier League compared to other clubs. And, and the reason for this is, as you, and you'll be far more familiar with this than I am, is that um, tickets effectively go on sale a few times during the year. You've got to be a member to be able to buy a ticket. And there's, there's both pros and cons. Really, if you're one of those members who's fortunate enough to get a ticket, you'll be absolutely delighted. Other people will be less so. Um, but what it does allow the club is to to sell tickets at a higher average price than many of the clubs. Because if you take a look at a season ticket cost and you spread that over the 19 league games, you know the, the prices are pretty. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not cheap by any means, but they are. They are. If you compare that to the price of an individual match ticket for a home game at Anfield, uh, the, match, the, the, the match day tickets are far more expensive. So Liverpool's strategy here, which is to effectively make more of these tickets available to match day attendees, would have been very lucrative financially. Clearly, they would have also had the cost of uh, developing the Anfield road stand. But they will have done their sums. They will have worked out their payback period. And I think this has been part of their thinking, is that uh, if there's no guarantee that matches are taking place, there's no logic in having the extension because you, you can't sell an extra 7,000 tickets if you can't have people physically in the stadium. Yeah, I'm sure it will get done at some point and, and fans will be able to get back into Anfield whenever that is, hopefully not too far down the line. Now, uh, we'll just uh, move on to last sort of Liverpool-specific question and that's regards the women's team because there's uh, a good chance that they may end up getting relegated from the Women's Super League this season. They've been struggling all season and, I mean, just the, the women's game as a whole, not just Liverpool, is, is going to be really, really affected by this coronavirus because... You know, they don't have the same number of fans coming into matches. They don't have the same broadcast deals. All that progress that they've made could well be undone, couldn't it? Um, very much so. I, mean, I think at, at present, sort of an analogy with, with Women's Super League and, and women's football in the UK is that there, there are similarities between um, the the England cricket team and county cricket in that the national team is able to generate significant levels of support but on the, the individual club level, it's more of a struggle. Um, and and that's, that's a challenge. If I, I've got uh, copies of the finances of all of the WSL clubs and they're all losing money. They're all losing you know, broadly between half a million to a million pounds a year. Now, in the context of the Premier League itself, the Premier League is, is bringing in five billion pounds a year. Those numbers are not huge. But if you are a chief executive of a club, if you're a finance director of a club and you are looking to make cost savings wherever and however you can, um, I, I am genuinely concerned about the, the future of the WSL and all of the individual clubs associated with it because they're not making money pre-pandemic. Clearly, it's going to take a lot of time for them to come back, uh, just as it will uh, all forms of football. 
um, and, and therefore they're going to be in a more um, at, at more at risk um, in terms of getting that continued support and funding from the parent club itself. Yeah, it's a, a difficult time for the entire women's football community and, and hopefully they can get through that and, and get through to the other side. But uh, before we finish, there's a, a couple of non-Liverpool and, and non-coronavirus stories that I'd like to touch on with you as well, just to, uh, to cheer everyone up at the end. The first of those being uh, the Newcastle United takeover or, or proposed takeover. If this goes through, I mean, they're going to be a serious contender at the top end of the Premier League, aren't they? Um. Yes and no. I think they're going to be more of a contender than they were under Mike Ashley. Um, Mike, Mike Ashley said a really tight budget. And um, the, the one benefit, you know, Mike, Mike Ashley doesn't have a lot of fans. In fact, he has no fans in Newcastle. Um, but the one thing that the new owners, assuming that this deal is approved, the one thing that they will benefit from is that under financial play rules, and, and this is what is going to stop Newcastle from going as crazily into the transfer market as we saw with Chelsea under Abramovich and Manchester City under Sheikh Mansour is that, that you're limited in terms of the amount of your losses that you could make. You're limited to £105 million over three years. Um, many clubs in the Premier League actually run quite close to that, that limit, which doesn't give any new owner a lot of wiggle room. Mike Ashley was at the other end of the scale. He, he ran a very tight ship and that meant um, that the new owners will have certainly a lot more money than um, many other clubs have done historically. And on, on the back of that, they will have a, a, a much bigger budget. And that will also be beneficial in the current transfer market, which, as we know, is going to be subdued. So will they be prospective Champions League qualifiers next season? I think that's a bridge too far. Um, I think a lot of change needs to be uh, had at the club. We saw Aston Villa get promoted last season, spend £100 million on transfers, and you know they're, they're in the bottom three. So a lot would depend on the quality of, of how that money is spent. But yes, they, they, they could be um, broad contenders, um, as other clubs that are not currently as part of the big six. And clearly, there's a club not too far from Anfield, whose owners want to join uh, that elite gang as well. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned financial fair play regulations perhaps limiting Newcastle, but I mean, the, the sort of indications at this stage are maybe that they're going to be relaxed this summer because of the coronavirus and, and because of the impact across football. I mean, could that potentially help them and maybe Everton, you say, could that maybe help level the playing field a little bit? Uh, potentially, what we might see is that the Premier League either extends the level of losses allowed for 2019-20 or says that 2019-20 is excluded from the calculations. So therefore, those clubs that have overspent this season will effectively get a free pass. Um, no decision has been made as yet, either Premier League level or UEFA level. So everybody's watching to see um, you know, if there's any confirmation one way or the other, it would seem very harsh and, and very short-sighted to give uh, clubs penalties for breaches of financial fair play in 2019-20 because the rules were not designed for a pandemic environment. Yeah, certainly the, the aim for, for all of those clubs, if those rules are relaxed, would be to get into the Champions League. And 
at the end of April, I think it was, there were some new plans put forward for a sort of new look Champions League, which I know you've done a little bit of looking into. And basically, it seems to be heading towards more of a closed shop. But that would be bad news, I think, for Liverpool and for football as a whole, wouldn't it? Well, it, it depends what side of the closed shop you are. But yes, I mean, the, the rules, one of which was has been suggested, and we don't know whether this will be approved. Certainly there are individual leagues who are very unhappy with this, is that there would be uh, two divisions of 16 in the Champions League. For some crazy reason, clubs would play 12 games um, out, out of that. And the way that it would work with the top eight uh, would go through to uh, a round of 16. The netball clubs would drop into uh, the Europa League. And then the bottom four clubs would effectively, um, they would be relegated out. So I think there, there will be some clubs that will be kicked out. But if you finished, it was in the top 12 of that 16 division league, you were automatically enrolled in the following year's Champions League uh, competition. So therefore, you could have a club who was performed really poorly domestically, but by their top 12, they'd end up in next year's Champions League. And the only way that you would qualify for the Champions League, remember presently we have the, the top four clubs in the Premier League go for it. You'd actually have to win your domestic competition. So the excitement that we get, um, and you know, if, if, if we recall, Liverpool won the Champions League last year on the back of finishing fourth the previous season. And who finished third? It was Spurs. So it's, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot riding on it presently. And I think there'll be individual leagues and individual clubs who are on the wrong side of a, any final decision that was made who would be very unhappy if such a post-shop environment was created. It is very much coming from some of the elite clubs. Um, certainly the likes of Agnelli at Juventus uh, has already made comment this year that clubs such as Atalanta, he said, they shouldn't have qualified for this year's Champions League because they are a small club. And as a football fan, I think that's one of the most insulting things I've ever heard in my life. Um, it, it doesn't give any hope to the likes of Leicester when, when they had their superb achievement in 2016. And it doesn't really give clubs much to, to look forward to because uh, you know, at present, uh, you know, we, we've got, we go down effectively to seventh position in the Premier League. And it does mean that rematch uh, has something to play for, even in the final matches of the season, because you're either going for that top seven or you're trying to avoid relegation or things of this nature and it reduces the number of dead rubbers. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think for, for Liverpool as well, it, part of the journey towards winning the Champions League was the fact that they had to get into it in the first place under Jurgen Klopp because, as you say, that was no me by no means a guarantee at the time. But uh, on to the final story that I want to touch on and it's a sort of study that your department at the University of Liverpool has looked into sort of valuing each Premier League club, I think. And Liverpool sort of come out at, at £1.4 billion. To me, that seems slightly low, but I mean, maybe you could talk us through the sort of process and, and the reasons behind that. Yeah, it, it, it does seem low. And, and I'll be honest, if, if the Liverpool counts were, were dated the 31st of May and they won the Champions League on the 2nd of June. So all of the additional prize money, all of the bonuses they would have got from Standard Chartered and so on, they were excluded 
from the, 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 the valuation because simply we don't know, we don't have any details as to those numbers. Um, FSG bought Liverpool for £300 million in, was it 2011? So over the course of the decade, their investment has increased in value by a factor of around about five. So you, know, you, you, think, about, you, you think of any other investment which has showed a, a five-fold return over the course of the decade, they're relatively few and far between. Liverpool were coming from a, a, a low standpoint um, because the disastrous ownership of actual burden upon the club. It, it's, you know, it's good news that they're out of that. I expect Liverpool to be moving further up that table and increasing their value. If we did, if we were operating in a non-COVID environment, when we finally crunch the numbers for next season, I think they will be a pinch of salt. Um, but the way the calculations are done, it takes into consideration how you generate your money, how good are you at wage control and things of this nature. Um, a lot of people have queried why Spurs are top of the league. Um, it's simply because Spurs um, managed to get to last year's Champions League final and managed to qualify um, for the top four of the Premier League on a wage bill which was only marginally higher than Everton. It was £100 million less than Chelsea, £150 million less than that of Liverpool, Manchester City and Manchester United. Um, so, yeah, I think Liverpool, your, your intuitive feeling is absolutely right. Uh, you'd expect them to be higher up the league. And I think that they will be um, when we do next year's calculations. Yeah, certainly they seem to be heading in the right direction under FSG. I'm sure you'll agree with that. But uh, yeah, I think that just about rounds us up. So thank you very much for, for joining us, Kieran. Thanks very much for the invite and stay safe, everyone. Yes, you too. And uh, as and when more details do break on football's return, we will, of course, bring you those across the Liverpool Echo and, and make sure to sign up to our Liverpool FC newsletter as well. All of the details will be in the description on YouTube or on wherever you get your podcasts from. It's completely free and it means you will not miss a single story as we enter these unprecedented times. For now, though, thank you to Kieran for joining me, you for watching or listening. And until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.